Few figures in history have made as much of an impact on the arts, literature and popular culture as Napoleon Bonaparte, who's been featured in countless novels, plays and films. To my dear Prince Alexis, I did not usurp the crown. I found it in the gutter and I I picked it up with my sword and it was the people Alexis the people who put it on my head he who saves a nation violates no law the American actor Rod Steiger capturing Napoleon's ambition and tactical brilliance. But how does the Napoleon of popular culture, sometimes portrayed as a heroic visionary and at others as comically short and bossy, compare with the real man? And how important was the theatre, in particular, to Napoleon himself in the communication of his own image? I'm Rob Weinberg, and to explore the matter further, I'm joined by Claire Civiter, a lecturer in French theatre and performance at the University of Bristol, whose book Tragedy and Nation in the Age of Napoleon has just been published by the Oxford University Press. This is historical fiction. Claire, what historic accounts do we have that give us an insight into the real persona of Napoleon Bonaparte? Well, I think it's really important to recognise that he has this astronomical career um, and also a very multifaceted character. And he's acutely aware from his mid-twenties when he's making his way up the ranks of the Revolutionary Army that your fortune can change very, very quickly. So he's seen this happen with lots of major revolutionary leaders. But he possesses something that others didn't. He's seen as being really new because of his charisma. And we need to remember that this is during the birth of the Age of Celebrity, for example. Um, Napoleon captures people's minds. And one of the ways he does this is that he has a really careful control over his image. So we see him presenting a very heroic and victorious image in the revolutionary newspapers, reporting what's happening in the Italian campaigns, in the army newspapers as well. So we think of him as this military genius during this period. But then we also see his ruthlessness, for example, when he plays a part in putting down the Royalist insurrection in 1759. But then there's a totally different side of him if we look at some of his personal correspondence, especially with Josephine, his wife, where he is torn with passion um, and absolutely distraught at being away from her. So he's constantly balancing these different aspects of his character and he's very aware of who he's talking to at any particular point and how they might record that. We're very aware from history, when we look at 20th century history in particular, people like Hitler, of the importance they placed on propaganda and managing their image. Was it a new phenomenon with someone like Napoleon? I mean, scholars have traced it back to antiquity before that. So there is a very long history of it. And the Bourbons had done it, for example, during the old regime before the French Revolution. Lots of grand paintings, for example, lots of literature, lots of theatre as a way of emphasising their control, but also how great France was. What's new with the revolution and then when Napoleon comes along is how that propaganda can be expressed. 
So, for example, with the French Revolution, you get an explosion in the press that wasn't possible during the old regime. And although it's clamped down on by the end of the revolution and then Napoleon will clamp down on it further, there are new mouthpieces in a way. There are more opportunities to spread these images and to speak to different audiences and to tune your message to different audiences. I think that's what's really different. You know, people are able to target specific audiences and get a message across to them. While we're talking about the fictionalisation, if you like, of a character, of a real historical character, it seems that Napoleon himself was quite a bibliophile. I believe he took portable libraries with him on his expeditions and cultivated relationships with literary figures. How much was that because he genuinely liked to read or was it more that having a great library and these erudite friends all around him was a symbol of his power and intellect? Yeah, I know. The portable library, I think, is brilliant. I found the letter the other day where he instructs one of his librarians to create this for him. And he's really precise, not only about kind of like the fact it should contain theatre and novels and history and works on religion and memoirs, but also how it should be formatted. You know, how light and the size of each book and the fact it should be able to lie open. And the fact that he would take this on campaign with him, I think, is really important. And the people also saw it as a way of understanding Napoleon. It was actually a copy belonging to Joseph Bonaparte, but it's in the Royal Collection at Windsor. And it's a tragedy called Ecdach, which is captured by the forces after the Battle of Vittoria in 1812. And Napoleon is listed as the author of this play by hand. He's not, I can confirm, I've read the archives dealing with the playwright, but he's seen as having this role on the literary scene and using literature as a way of supporting his military, but also his state. So I think he has a very strong role. He understands what literature, theatre, the arts, etc. can do. In terms of surrounding himself with literary figures, yes, he did do that. But it's important to remember as well that a lot of these figures were polymaths. So you might be a great author or a great playwright, but you could also be a high civil servant. You might work in the military. You might actually be a maths professor and write plays on the side. So people had more diverse careers than we necessarily think. That said, he did take time to speak to the artists of his reign and the playwrights and the novelists. He would have comments on their works. He had private readings for him. In some senses, this is part of his social life. You know, if you're having a public reading, for example, it's a nice gathering, thinking of kind of like salon society as well at the time. But it's also a way of understanding what's happening in the public sphere. And at least during the consulate, he got his librarian to write a daily report on everything that was being reported in the press and all the new publications. And for him, it was really a way of staying abreast of what was happening in the literary sphere and trying to gauge what people were thinking. Claire, you have a new book out where you've been looking at how playwrights of Napoleon's time rewrote the narratives of history to serve the present interest. How did they do that? Yeah, so it's fascinating. So I've been looking mainly at tragedies because it was kind of the genre of a spoken drama where France had a tradition of excelling and where it wanted to excel again. And if we look at these plays in general, there are three main groups that start to appear. So there's one group that focuses on ancient history, so the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, a lot of the myths and legends that have been around beforehand during the 18th century and that Napoleon had obviously read about, along with other members of his generation. Then there are plays that talk about modern European history, so there are a few set in Russia or Spain, for example. And then there's a final group set in French national history, 
which for us in Britain with our tradition of Shakespeare might not sound particularly novel, but it was something that was a growing trend during the 18th century in France and it was still seen to be quite new and exciting in terms of tragedy come the beginning of the 19th. And these plays are interesting for two accounts. So firstly, the ones that work on antiquity had been a staple of the repertoire before Napoleon came to power. So these plays, both new and old, retold classical myths that had become popular during the 17th century and had been attached also to the image of the French king, Louis XIV, the Sun King, who had been in control during what was known as the Great Century in France. And these plays were useful, whether they were the old works from beforehand or whether they were new works retelling these classical tales. And they were useful for Napoleon because they offered him a sort of legitimacy. So we need to remember, he wasn't born to rule. No one could predict that he would end up in charge of France. And so these plays and their retelling of history allow people to create a link in between the classical times. The French at the time also saw themselves as the heirs of the Greeks and the Romans. To create so a link in between classical times, Louis XIV, when these plays had really kind of like come to the fore in France, and then Napoleon as well in the present. So he's allowing himself to be inserted into a lineage of great rulers that legitimises his power and also makes people see him as being perhaps slightly more French than they had necessarily thought. Then the plays in general, one of the really interesting trends that comes out of them in their attempts to rewrite history is that there's an increasing focus on tensions that come out of civil wars and they try and retry famous historical events. I've been looking at this as a way of understanding that theatre is offering a space for the retrial of the French Revolution. So this was a major trauma that had happened in France between 1789 and 1799. Families had been split apart, turned against each other. Hundreds of thousands of people had died. It was a real period of social change, but also social tension. And obviously, when Napoleon comes to power, that doesn't just all get swept under the carpet. People still need a space to be able to talk about it and to work through some of those issues. So a lot of the plays that work on antiquity retell tales relating to the Trojan War. And this was also a combat that had essentially lasted for 10 years, according to some sources. And the French were able to map the French Revolution onto the Trojan War. You have great, great warriors like Achilles and Hector. And so it's quite a useful narrative to try and understand why you've potentially lost members of your family. And the National Library in France, for example, has a copy of a play called Hector, where a revolutionary general's wife basically ends up embodying the role of Andromache or Andromache as a way of understanding why her husband isn't coming back. So Hector obviously goes off to fight and he never returns. And we see her underlining and scoring Andromache's goodbyes to her husband and how painful that is. And then we get plays that focus on elements of French history, so great national events that have also caused traumas in French history. So thinking about the execution of the Knights Templar, for example, or the assassination of Henry IV. And when playwrights put these events on stage, they're using theatre as a way of retrying these events, essentially. So they want to investigate who orders what, how do people react, who's responsible, what evidence are they using as well. That's something that comes up again and again. And reception documents from the Napoleonic period show that audiences used these debates within the play, 
to talk about the French Revolution. And we can see that these plays are allowing for a space of catharsis. And related to that, there's actually one critic who at the beginning of the consulate says that by showing great traumas of our national history, we're actually understanding how much more important the consulate is, or that Napoleon is, in bringing peace and social order to our contemporary world. So it's also working in Napoleon's favour. Did Napoleon himself actually have a hand in that, in a sense, to perpetuate his own political purposes? Yes. He was really interested in theatre and he spent quite a lot of time asking for the repertoires and programmes and at one point even the scripts so that he could decide a kind of like which plays should be reprised, be performed again. And the other thing he does that's really interesting is that he develops a whole choreography about when he attends the theatre. So we have contemporary accounts that say it's actually quite difficult to see Napoleon. You know, you can read lots about him in the press, but it's actually quite difficult to see him. And there are two places where you can see him. One is the military parades and the other one is the theatre. And Napoleon, instead of arriving at the beginning of the evening, as someone might normally, you know, he would appear in his box normally halfway through a performance. And having had the script beforehand, he would know at exactly which point to enter. So when he entered, the actors would stop, the audience would all stand up and turn to him. And it was a real moment of everyone turning towards him. And then the actors would restart the scene and so if there was a particular message going on about the clemency of a ruler, for example, or about their military heroism, the spectators were able to draw a direct parallel in between Napoleon and in between what was going on on stage. And then those accounts of Napoleon arriving at specific lines are reported in the press. So even if you're not at the theatre that evening, for example, so theatres could fit 1,000, 1,500 people in, you could read about it. And not only in Paris, but you could read about it in Marseille or in Bordeaux or in Strasbourg, for example. So this image of Napoleon arriving with specific messages is circulated across France. How did Napoleon's regime exercise censorship? Did audiences realise what was being served up for them? And how did they react? We often think today of censorship as something that's quite repressive, and certainly it can be, but at the same time, it was seen as being important to control the quality of literature. You know, if you've got too much literature being published, there was this real fear that it was becoming what they called termed degenerate. Um, you know, it wasn't of high enough literary quality. And Goethe even writes, according to the archives, to the body in charge of this, praising them about what a good idea it is. So, you know, there's censorship going on, but it's also perhaps different from the censorship that we think of today after the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century. You know, if we're talking about Napoleonic propaganda, there's almost this expectation we can see that works should praise France and should praise Napoleon. That's taken as the baseline. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. 
Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Soldiers! Of my old guard! After 20 years, I have come to say goodbye. France has fallen. So remember me. Though I love you all, I cannot embrace you all. With this kiss, remember me. Goodbye, my soldiers. Goodbye, my sons. Goodbye, my children. So who was the audience for the theatre in Napoleon's time? And did they understand the message that was being served up to them? First of all, you have different types of theatres. You have what are called kind of the grand théâtre, so the big theatres that have monopolies, for example, where the audience is of a higher class by and large um, than in the other theatres. Though having said that, we need to remember that their servants went with them. There were a lot of free tickets. This was also the time of the cabals, where if you were an actor or a playwright, you basically go and give lots of free tickets to people so they come and support you and then boo out the other people. So there are lots of different ways of getting into the theatre, even if you can't necessarily afford a ticket. Um, and the other great thing about theatre is obviously it's spoken and performed. It could also be accessed by people who didn't necessarily know how to read or couldn't read novels, for example. And we also know that quite a few people who worked in the theatre couldn't necessarily read. So from the archive documents, we can see them using a cross to sign their name, for example, or writing very phonetically, which is great fun to try and decipher. What do you think the appeal was, and still is to a certain extent, of the image of Napoleon that he created for himself? Did people buy into it? He, in many senses, is a tragic character himself. If we think of great tragedies and, and the Roman emperors, for example, even though we know that they're bad morally, there's an admiration going on here. And I think that's really effective and something that Napoleon cultivates. Because even if you're opposed to Napoleon, you can't deny his success. You know, he was in charge of France at the age of 30. Like, a lot was made of when Macron became president at 39. Napoleon was 30. By the age of 45, he had been in control of Europe from the Iberian Peninsula all the way up to Russia. It's an incredible achievement. So even if you don't agree with him you can't help but be impressed at what he achieved. 
even if that has to come with the caveat that, you know, we have to look at the death toll of these wars, of the conditions that people lived in with the censorship, the constraints of liberties going on at this particular time. So it's not necessarily wholehearted praise, but it is admiration in that very tragic sense of everything that he did manage to establish. When one thinks of 20th century Russia, for example, there are composers like Shostakovich who are living and working under Stalin's regime, but they're covertly very critical, even through their art, of what was going on. Was there something similar happening during Napoleon's time? Could there be a certain critique or even satire going on? Napoleon definitely tries to use theatre to his advantage, but one of the issues is you can't actually put him on stage. So first of all, there's a general policy that you shouldn't put people who are alive on the stage, be this Napoleon or one of his brothers or local merchants. So there's a general kind of fear of putting living people on the boards or representing them in place. And then on the other hand, there's kind of like a question of who would be good enough to perform Napoleon. Provincial actors were often embroiled in local scandals and there was a general fear of them. Actors had been excommunicated in France until 1789 and they still had a difficult relationship with the church sometimes during the Napoleonic regime. So there was this idea that he couldn't be performed on stage, and so playwrights had to use allegory, they had to refer to him. Through characters like the medieval king Clovis, Charlemagne, there was an attempt to talk about Napoleon through Charlemagne, though it didn't actually reach the stage under Napoleon. There were people who tried to use William the Conqueror, Henry IV of France, for example, all of these characters... And that was quite important because audience members, and they were well trained at doing this, but had to draw parallels in between what was going on on stage and then in between Napoleon. But the issue about that is that you're leaving a huge power to the interpretation of the audience. And of course, theatre is a very collective environment and messages could easily be turned on their head or be passed from one side of the theatre to another. So you could have the best intentions in the world and then all of a sudden you're pro-state play was turned on its head and playwrights at the time questioned you know how can we be held responsible for the meanings that the audience put into this and it is important as well to recognize that one of the things about plays is the text might be censored and that was part and parcel of having your play performed both during the old regime and napoleon and then under the restoration but whilst the text might be controlled the staging of the play left more room for interpretation. So if we look at one of the major Napoleonic hits, the play Les Templiers, or The Knights Templar, which premiered in 1805, we can see that the victims of the tragedy, the Knights Templar, are dressed in white cloaks, and white is the colour of the monarchy. We can see that they are held in the temple, which is the prison that had held Louis XVI before his execution. And then they are taken to the scaffold, as Louis XVI was, although he was guillotined. And people start drawing all these allusions and readings. They do so in order to turn what was meant to be quite a normal tragedy into a very monarchical tragedy, at least for some. If we look at theatre during the Napoleonic regime, it's really interesting to note that in the consulate, this first period from 1799 to 1804, where Napoleon is creating all these massive administrative reforms. People are testing how they can show him. You know, how can you portray this first consul who then becomes first consul for life in 1802 and then becomes emperor? The sands are always shifting. And so it's very much kind of a trial and error. 
And I've been looking at these plays recently and came to the conclusion that February 1802 was a really bad time for Napoleon. In terms of theatrical censorship, there are two of the most famous examples. There's Alexandre Duval's Édouard en Écosse, so Edward in Scotland, which was about the pretender. And so you have the Scottish heir to the throne being rescued by the French and trying to make him come back in his own country. So obviously that wasn't going to go down particularly well in 1802. And then Dupetti's, one of his plays as well, that people told Napoleon made fun of the three consuls and of him in particular. Though actually, if we look at the text, it doesn't seem to do that in quite the same way. So we can see that he is particularly paranoid at parts and both of these plays were banned. Duval went into self-imposed exile, Dupati was arrested and sent to the Ponton in Brest and was allegedly going to be deported to South America. But then both of these playwrights come back, they continue to compose for the rest of the Napoleonic regime. So we can see that there are certainly kind of sensitive moments and kind of Napoleon having bad days in terms of his relationship with the arts. But they also gave very clear examples to other playwrights and other authors about how they could show Napoleon or not. And in the theatre, people did try to add in some criticism in places. People read criticism in other places. But it's important to say that because of censorship, like a play that was overtly anti-Napoleonic or pro-royalist was never going to make the stage. There is one of my favourite accounts, so kind of uh, spectacles of curiosity fall under theatres in terms of policing. And there was a performer going around France who was uh, Mademoiselle Brun, who was Scottish apparently, so I think that's meant to be Miss Brown with a French accent. And she'd been performing in St Petersburg and she'd come to France and she had a pyrotechnic display that displayed Napoleon as this unformed mass of fire. And then Louis XVI appeared right at the end in full spectacle and as this kind of elegant saviour of the entire situation. So, you know, there were people who did try and go against the state-sanctioned view of Napoleon. But if we look at what reaches the actual kind of theatrical boards, by and large, audiences are encouraged to draw positive parallels in between the heroes they're seeing on stage and then the hero on the political stage as well. When we come into the 20th century and up to the present day, Napoleon's name is still very much present in popular culture. We have the tyrannical pig in Animal Farm who's called Napoleon. We have Napoleon being played by Marlon Brando, by Rod Steiger, by Herbert Lom twice. Even Bugs Bunny in a short called Napoleon Bunny Part. What do you think his enduring appeal as a character, as a fictional creation even, is? So his presence is still very much felt. He has such a recognisable image as well. I think if we, you know, we start thinking towards the end of the 20th and beginning of the 21st century, that's one of the things that's so easy to represent about Napoleon. You know, the hat in particular is an instant kind of recollection of who we're talking about. And if we look at the interest that auctions create in, you know, when they're selling objects that belong to him, that interest is still very much there. But at the same time, you know, he's appearing in video games now, so he's in the Assassin's Creed as this very manipulative, secretive character, which is wonderful to analyse. But also the art forms that appear in France and elsewhere during the Napoleonic period are still very much part of our political and artistic language today. So I was struck how during the Brexit campaign, Bell and the Guardian, for example, took inspiration from one of Gilray's prints from the beginning of the 19th century about Napoleon carving up Europe, for example. And there was an article that reckoned in the 1970s that bar Jesus Christ, there was more written about Napoleon than any other human being. And I think that just shows how fascinated people are 
with this figure. And as I said before, you know, there are definite disadvantages. There are some very dark moments of his reign, but he continues through this ruler who was not born to rule, this genius who strove to become emperor of the French and one of the most important figures of 19th century Europe. There are many ideals that he continues to carry today that allow each of us to hook onto him individually in our own particular ways. Claire Civita, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Historical Fiction 